Welcome to Making Therapy Better, the podcast that brings together some of the top minds in psychotherapy, as well as everyday clinicians to talk about where the field is headed and how we can achieve better mental health care for everyone. Making Therapy Better is hosted by Professor Bruce Wampold, who has dedicated his career to understanding how therapy works and advocating evidence-based methods for improving outcomes. His guest today is Helena Neeson-Lee, Ph.D. Helena is a professor of clinical psychology at the University of Oslo and a practicing psychologist. She participates in a number of research projects in Norway as well as internationally, including collaborations with the University of Sheffield and the University of Chicago. She has published over 50 papers and articles, and her research interests include therapist effects, the therapeutic alliance, mechanisms of change in psychotherapy, and outcomes research, among many others. Making Therapy Better is brought to you by CarePaths. CarePaths has been helping in-person and virtual therapy practices thrive for over 20 years with their complete web-based EHR and practice management platform. As mental health care evolves, CarePaths is leading the way in making measurement-based care easy and cost-effective for therapists. Visit carepaths.com to sign up for a free trial today. And now, without further ado, Episode 7 of Making Therapy Better, The Power of Professional Humility with Helena Neeson-Lee, Ph.D. Helena, it's good to see you. Um, we've worked together uh, over the years in Norway and different places, so it's a great opportunity to be able to spend an hour talking to you. You know, as we know, you're um, a researcher at the University of Oslo and a psychologist as well, uh, doing practice and training students to be therapists. So. In this uh, uh, professional development, you've been interested in therapists and what makes effective therapists. So how did you get interested in this particular area? Good question. Um, you, you have a, a great part in that, Bruce, and my former supervisor and now very close colleague, um, Helge Rønnestad, here at the Department of Oslo. But I think I started earlier than that, noticing that Teachers, for example, in school would have a very different influence on a class and or me as a student. And uh, maybe they use the same, say, teaching methods and even the same books, but the way they communicated and came across or did not come across uh, was quite different uh, between teachers, medical doctors and so on. And so when I started to study psychology, it, I started in London and then I continued in Oslo. I, the therapy wars were going on in the 90s uh, and all the different new three-letter excellent therapy uh, methods were being developed. And a lot of the discussion back then, and maybe even some today, uh, dealt with which was the better therapy method. And I, I was not very convinced about that question. And then you came along, as, as the song goes, with your great psychotherapy debate in 2001. And that was mind-blowing. And it, it, was, it, it gave me so much, I resonated so much in it that made me feel that this, this is it. And this is so important. And uh, it's 20-something years now. Well, Helena, it's gratifying to know that I've had an influence uh, on people's development and the way they think about this. But clearly what you're saying is you had um, instructors, therapy instructors of different orientations, yeah. and they all had something to say and something uh, persuasive and important, yet they were very different. And that clearly... Uh, uh, impacted you in saying, so what, what, um, what's important here is the therapist. Mm. Yes, I thought so, because, yeah, it's uh, not so much which package or brand, rather than who is delivering the therapy. Yeah. Well, let's get into that, because you've made a contribution to that literature, um, particularly 
in the area of professional self-doubt. So we went, um, and if you read the handbook of psychotherapy and behavior change on therapists, for most of the history of psychotherapy, we haven't known what characterizes effective therapists. We've looked at different variables. Um, but then you uh, investigated this idea that the professional self-doubt of the therapist is related to their outcomes. So those therapists that had more professional self-doubt had better outcomes with their patients. So what is professional self-doubt and how does that make yeah. a difference? Let me just start, if that's okay, before getting to that actual finding, because we didn't have a clue about that. And of course, the uh, the whole uh, questionnaire that we used were developed by the CRN, the Collaborative Research Network, international collaboration between researchers. And they had uh, gathered a large uh, survey battery uh, by uh, using different aspects of what they thought might be important for therapist development, their own well-being, their own uh, professional development, as well as maybe important for therapeutic uh, effectiveness and patient outcomes, ultimately. Um, and so they, uh, David Olinsky, Helge Rundestar, and lots of others started to do this in the 90s, late 90s, 80s, beginning of 90s. And then one of their uh, questionnaires regarded difficulties, that the things that uh, different psychotherapists would find challenging. Um, and then they did a very elaborative uh, or elaborate uh, uh, prod process of gathering different, by, by means of a qualitative uh, project, uh, by means of uh, uh, gathering these diff uh, different uh, psychotherapists to, to mention or name things that they would find difficult. Tragic life circumstances of the patient, uh, anger, frustration taken out on them as a therapist, and so on. And so they constructed this uh, questionnaire of difficulties in practice. Uh, and we did uh, factor analysis on, on that particular scale. And they did beforehand, and we did that in, in our sample in Norway as well, across different settings in Norway. And uh, there were three major factors, um, negative personal reaction, which would be the negative emotional experiences, having troubles with standing someone's neediness or emotional needs or liking a patient, trouble finding something to like in a patient, which is, you know, important to try to do whatever you can. Uh, and it can be difficult, of course, uh, to, to be able to create a sound alliance with someone who might be very dissimilar or very different from you. And, and very so, and, and very difficult. And very difficult. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And so so negative person reaction, frustrating treatment case that no one, nothing seems to help. And maybe also other circumstances, financial, uh, health issues, and so on, that would be frustrating we could, that you can't necessarily work on. And then this one third professional self-doubt, which deals with um, doubting whether you can have a beneficial effect on a patient or um, the being unsure about what is the essence of a patient's problem and what causes it and what can be useful and doubting your own capacity to be of help. And we thought these would be negative, negatively influencing outcomes. Mm -hmm. So, and uh, it turned out not to be the case. Uh, so, so, so you're saying you expected that those therapists who had doubt about their own effectiveness yep. would have poorer outcomes. Exactly. So we, we tested all these factors. We thought they would all be negative. We didn't find the self-reported social skills and so on had a lot to say, as we know later from later research now, and maybe prior as well, of course. Uh, but we did expect maybe this is something that taps into what is relevant in terms of patient experience, the patient's experience of the therapist. 
because it's not the haloing effect with uh, I'm very empathic and so on uh, that might be going on. So we thought we might pass some of that and that they would all be negative. So, but when we found in our sample in Norway across different settings, uh, mostly outpatient clinics and some university clinics, uh, we found, but the patients were uh, mainly quite challenging in the sense that they had a lot of uh, distress and uh, comorbidity, lots of personality disorder problems and so on. So the patients uh, that these therapists treated were quite challenging, uh, we, we, we should assume. Uh, but we, we did not expect professional self-doubt to have a positive influence. Now that we've had a chance to think about this finding, uh, we, it makes more sense, but that is in a way post hoc, so to speak. Well, explain it to us then. You, you, you've now come around to this idea, and, and there's others who investigated this as well, that, um, yeah, that professional self-doubt does characterize effective therapists. So just clinically, what does this mean? Yes, clinically, when you say that, I remember that I discussed this construct with Lee McCullough, whom you knew very well, Bruce. Uh, and she said, before knowing anything about the results that I was going to report in Barcelona at a conference, she said, I doubt myself all the time. I would be very skeptical of a therapist who did not say, I have trouble comprehending the essence of a patient's problem, problems. and to be unaware or be doubting whether you could actually have a beneficial effect and be in that situation of doubt uh, often. Uh, so that was really, I, I found that very interesting. And, and she was, we know from her video, she was, she was a fantastic therapist. Um, so what I think since we haven't, we don't, this, this is not a behavioral measure, it's self-report. Uh, so it's something that the therapists say about themselves. Um, uh, and we don't think, in fact, that this means that these are very anxious therapists. In fact, mm. we found in the same sample that more anxiety during sessions was related to lower uh, therapeutic alliances rated by the patients, for example, and also outcome. So it's not that they are more anxious and not having a clue about what they're doing. Rather, we think that they are more willing to accept that they might be wrong, that they're constantly mm. trying to uh, get better, to understand very complex issues. So, and willing to take feedback and to, to hear from the client, this is not really helping me without becoming very defensive. We know mm. that from studies, that that is important. So putting the things together, like the Christian Molto studies and the Anderson studies, of course. So we think that they are more open and willing to uh, critically evaluate their own contribution. Mm -hmm. but, but we should probably add, not in the way that is very sort of destructive or poisonous, in the sense that we found that the best combination for a therapist in, in terms of his self or her self-understanding would be to, to admit to being in doubt and being unsure how to deal with complex issues, clinical issues, but also having a, a fairly uh, nurturant uh, way of treating yourself as a person. Mm -hmm. So it, it's not the end of the world if you didn't do this session uh, quite as well as you would hope and the client would hope. You, could, you can handle the disappointment and you can work on it. So repairing alliances and being able to correct your course, take advice, take supervision, uh, mm -hmm. change when things need changing. Mm -hmm. That's what we think. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Um, there's related constructs, and let's let's kind of see if we can uh, drill down and, and uh, understand what this is. In some ways, it's related to professional humility would would that be a another way of describing i this? think it's a much better term mm -hmm. Re remember that the fact this is a, a, a term of a factor that is related to this particular questionnaire 
and it's it's they really uh, managed to to touch something important. Uh, but people always get into some sort of <laughs> doubt, so to speak, when hearing that doubt is doubt is beneficial. Mm. Uh, because we have all the social psychology, Bandura, self-efficacy, that you need to believe in yourself. So uh, doubting yourself is also, you know, related to depression and yeah. gloomy states. So, so maybe it's a better term to use to, to think of this as uh, sort of loading on or, or uh, representing or reflecting humility. Mm. And then we can talk about a lot of the different findings that would be relevant to, to sort of uh, explain this particular yeah. finding. Well, we know that therapists often are overconfident about their abilities. And so if you feel like uh, I'm in the top 10% of therapists, I'm really good, there's no motivation to improve. So it might be the humility and this questioning of could I do a little bit better is a motivator to actually uh, uh, improve as a therapist and to think about this particular patient in a different way. Exactly, spot on. Yeah. And I think that is a, a crucial element of expertise in so many different domains. And I think, of course, we have in, in Scandinavia, we have Søren Kierkegaard, the famous existentialist, who talked about professional humility some 200 years ago. Mm. So he, he understood this, what you just said, I think. Um, and we have some findings which really uh, uh, reflect that. Uh, in Germany, we have a, 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 an interesting study where uh, therapists were to rate how they thought their patients were doing, and these scores were compared to how the patients themselves thought things were going, or self-report of symptoms and quality of life. And the more modest the therapist score relative mm. to the patient, the better the actual outcome, if we indeed agree that that would be the, the patient's view, that that's sort of more true in a way. Mm. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? Is it? I mean, the same finding has been uh, found some other places as well, and it's coming out quite soon. So, the, as you said, the more overconfident, uh, uh, the, the, the less uh, uh, well you actually perform or you do. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, interesting. Um Reminds me of a, a a few anecdotes and and uh, uh, comments. Bill Miller, you know, the developer of motivational interviewing, wrote a book. It's a quite short book uh, uh, with his colleague about effective therapists. And one of the characteristics of effective therapists that he emphasizes is curiosity. Curiosity in about the patient and about the patient's life. And I think this is related to this idea of humility because it's, it's um, uh, this idea that I'm not omnipotent. I know everything about this patient uh, because I'm such a, a perceptive therapist, but it's this genuine curiosity about the patient. Exactly. Curiosity is it's a, a much more benign, say, uh, construct. Uh, but humility is also positively laden uh, mm -hmm. concept. But um, yes, that makes a lot of sense. And maybe also this, um, let's say, that you can you can actually allow yourself not to be, as you say, omnipotent, perfect, ideal. Uh, that you can allow yourself to be human. And to to struggle and to want to have feedback from others and the patient in terms of how this is working mm -hmm. is so crucial. I think think about all the sports athletes and so on, how they constantly push themselves to get better. Mm -hmm. They don't say, "I'm at the top. I'm the best." This is it. Some do. Some do. <laughs> well, they asked Pablo Casals in his eighty why he practices three or four hours a day when he's the, you know, the premier cellist in the world. And he says, 
I think I'm still improving. Yes. So, exactly. Interesting. It reminds me of another story. I love to tell this anecdote. So uh, I once had the opportunity to uh, present um, with Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winner. So it was an interesting time. But he's giving his talk to uh, clinical psychologists and psychiatrists. And at the question and answer period, one of the psychologists in the audience challenged him and said, well, clinical judgment's far superior to anything else we know uh, about the patient from our experience. And so it went back and forth and, and uh, uh, Professor Kahneman uh, uh, presented some evidence and this guy was adamant. So finally, uh, Kahneman says to him, well, how confident are you in your conclusion? Oh, I'm very confident. And he said, well, I won the Nobel Prize by showing that confidence is inversely related to accuracy. Fantastic. And I thought that was, that that sums it up, right? This this idea of, of therapists who, who are confident, so confident in their abilities without taking the time to examine what they're doing and examine their outcomes and think about how they could get better. Exactly. So. And so, but some, let me just add one thing. Some uh, people from different uh, cultures have come up to me and said, do you think this would be the same in every culture that that, that kind of um, attitude is beneficial? In my culture, people have stated, patients want an authority mm-hmm. and maybe it still would uh, would we would find the same uh, result but it, it's a question about culture cultural differences in terms of uh, health professionals and so on mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it does, that again reminds me of uh, Jesse Owens cultural humility and how that is and, and of course yeah. that goes very well together with these findings well, I think it's two issues raised for me in, in that comment. I think the cultural part of it is tremendously important. And we have to, not only between countries, but within a country, different groups, uh, and even just variation among therapists or, or patients, variation among patients, I should say. I mean, there are patients who... Uh, uh, are much more desirous of a directive. Give me some advice about what to do. And others are um, uh, kind of uh, resistant to to that advice. And good therapists understand that. So the cultural part of this, I think, is, is tremendously important. But I think we want to... Uh, um, really look at this a little more carefully. I don't think that this culture, this uh, professional humility or even professional self-doubt is like, I don't know what I'm doing here. That's not what it is. It is that, that yes, I, I am competent at what I do, but at the same time, I'm still curious, the focus is on the patient's progress and what we can do together that's going to change. So uh, let's be clear, and I think you agree with this, that professional humility isn't this idea that that I don't know what I'm doing. Very different. Absolutely. And that's important. Uh, it's it's more openness and willingness to correct yourself and willingness to be wrong than, than not knowing what you're doing. It's not insecurity in that sense or, or giving the responsibility to the patient or someone else. Mm. It's your responsibility. So there's really two parts of this, I think, we've talked about. It's um, both about the curiosity and the focus on the patient's progress for this particular patient. And then it's also, how can I get better more generally as a therapist? Yeah. Yeah. So 
Helena, how does this translate into your training of therapists? How do you how do you help therapists who are emerging uh, really uh, adopt this kind of stance in their work? And not, not just in their work as their training, but over the life course, their whole yeah. professional careers. It's a very good question. I think it's, I have a couple of answers to that. One is, of course, how you act yourself as a supervisor or a teacher um, of some authority in that role, that you can tell uh, the students about um, things that you struggled with and um, try to really create an atmosphere where you can come forth with these things. I was, I was not, I was really uh, uh, worried or I was, I was not sure how to, can you help me how to deal with this situation when the client was so discontent or, or silent for the whole session. I, I felt I was not doing a, a good job and so on to, to allow for those uh, conversations so that we don't, sit into supervision or in our, or in seminars and just try to show off how brilliant we are. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's number one. And so just mo modeling. Modeling. Profession. Yeah. I think modeling is important in, in terms of how you help students. Uh, and also, um, of course, we need to, we need to practice uh, the difficult things and of course deliberate practice and and the fist study the facilitative interpersonal skills uh studies and findings have found their way to to our departments of course uh and so we we do try to focus on these interpersonal skills that are important and it's it's in, incredibly helpful because they're also quite they have been operationalized they 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 can look quite different in different contexts but we talk about this ability to to focus on the client to have a way of communicating that is simple straightforward in in straightforward language verbal fluency uh, to to really to be sensitive toward affect the affective state of the uh, client so we need to we need to really to to try to to guess or try to work on that. And it's it's really nice to sit with a group of students. And we're all in this business of trying to figure this out rather than one being the expert and the others just having to, to perform something. But you, you raise a really important point. The, the professional humility or professional self-doubt um, is reflective of this desire to improve. But the improvement actually takes practice. And you mentioned Tim Anderson's facilitative interpersonal skills as the skills that one could practice to get better. So uh, in some sense, the, the humility is the substrate of the need to improve the actual therapeutic skills. And I think that's an important um, uh, point to keep in mind. True, because those are the skills that we can work on and train and try to, to improve. The atmosphere of humility is something that you need to model and to try when you see that students become very anxious and try to, to take that away in, in the sense that it, it's complicated. It's com complex and and to to try to help the, the the student to say tolerate this rather than having to to act on it, so to speak, mm. sometimes. Mm. Yeah. Uh, when I work with therapists, sometimes I try to combine these by practicing the skills. So I will practice with the students or the the beginning therapist or even uh, uh experienced therapist and then to give each other feedback and practice again so it's it's really interesting to to do this um either with a supervisee uh or a colleague um individually or in groups and i yeah. like to do it in groups because then we can critique and uh, iterate again how to respond to a difficult 
instance mm. in in therapy. Exactly. This is the yeah. crux of deliberate practice, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Helena, in let's let's uh, shift gears here a little bit. In your practice, um, you're a psychodynamic therapist. Um, given what you talked about in the beginning, learning all these different approaches and all the trainers and uh, uh, instructors were enthusiastic. You picked one orientation for yourself. Um, So tell us about that. Why did I do that or how? Yeah, Yeah. about that journey. Good question. I I think it's an important question, actually, for for therapists in general, anyone to to really to, to reflect on that. That, that sort of what, what drew me to this particular way of thinking about, say, mental health, uh, mental problems or, or uh, you know, change mechanisms or uh, etiology. How, how, how does uh, mental health problems arise in the first place? Uh, and what can we do to help people when they struggle? Uh, so I should... I, I was more drawn to the psychodynamic um, tradition, I think, because it, because of this very crucial element of the importance of attachment and human relationships that, and, and my interest in developmental psychology, that individuals are formed in, in um, interpersonal relationships both in terms of who they are as individuals and, of course, how they respond to other people later in life. Uh, So that particular idea about the importance of early uh, relationships and, of course, the evolving relationships that you have later in life is what it's so important to my understanding of human development, so to speak, (laughs) to to use some big words. Uh, and I, I also have, um, I, I do find that a theory or a notion of the unconscious is to me uh, appealing. Uh, I believe that it's we, we have irrational or ambiguous and uh, complex experiences, uh, which is another reason, in fact, because I wanted to be a film director. So I'm very yeah. interested in... Uh, films, uh, theatre, literature, and I think for me the psychodynamic sort of influence is is quite important to to use uh, psychodynamic ways of understanding art or trying to understand motivations of people, human relationships, very, very sometimes destructive uh, behaviours, things that are difficult to grasp, with a very rational sense of uh, of who we are, so that has also been quite important for me. The, that kind of inspiration in terms of understanding or or, or um, encountering art mm. in broad sense, um, and then we have the vision of reality. I think I think how you view um, life, to to just to put it bluntly. Uh, we have my ideas about what uh, what is important in life is maybe more coinciding with um, aspects that have been uh, focused on in in the more psychoanalytic traditions, uh, and I would say the sort of that loss suffering is inevitable for all of us, so we need to embrace that. Uh, that that experiences are always quite complex. They're not just one thing, but rather a range of things. Um, so th- this sort of more tragic vision, which does align with, uh, as we talked about, existentialism, uh, is another thing that that made me more um, to to drawn to to psychoanalytic thinking, mm. and of course. I should add one more thing, psychotherapy research findings. Mm-hmm. I think the alliance, the importance of the alliance, and now we talked about relational skills of the therapist as being crucial, 
I mean, the technical skills are, of course, important too. They are embedded in the alliance because what you do and why you do it would would have to would have to do with the more technical aspects, right, or uh, methods. But uh, I think that both attachment theory and research and um, which I took a great interest in in my early days as a student, and also the findings of of, uh, of our field, psychotherapy research, has also made me be quite confident that we're onto something, but not in the sense that I say psychodynamic therapy is better than other therapies. I didn't mm-hmm. say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I believe in the Dodo Bird uh, verdict. Uh, but for yeah. me, it's been more, let's say, helpful or inspiring uh, to to be uh, to be influenced or or to be guided by. I think it, it's a guide, a theory, it's mm-hmm. a guide. It's not a recipe, but it, it's guiding you in some way. Well, clearly, um, you're passionate about this, and it isn't just a a um, understanding of how psychotherapy works, but you're really looking at it as a worldview and understanding uh, human functioning uh, in the broadest sense, all the way from, well, psychotherapy to art and literature and life that this is a way to think about not just uh, pathology, but in terms of the human experience, well-being, meaning in life. So a a comprehensive view of the world. Hmm. Yes, that would be fair to say. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we're going to be better off if we have therapists of different persuasions who are passionate about what they do. And uh, I think we have those uh, clinicians across the board, but it's great to to hear your enthusiasm for for doing this work. So- um, That's important, Bruce, just to, maybe that that, that you believe in something, isn't isn't that, in a way, what you're saying, as long as you and one should always strive to towards, you know, you, in humility would be the, the same sort of underlying uh, attitude here that there are other ways of doing things. And of course, quite to, quite often you would still find a lot of common aspects across different traditions. For example, I would say that we have these three major um schools the psychoanalytic uh, the uh, learning and or behavioral and later cbt with information processing and cognitive revolution and then we have the third waves and we have uh emotion focus from the humanistic tradition and if you look at say mentalization mentalization based uh, therapy which comes from psychoanalytic thinking drawing other areas as well you you would find that they may be quite similar. They have different names uh, to, to uh, when they address the, the things that happen in, in therapy, but they, the phenomena may be quite similar. Uh, so let's say MBT, EFT, MCT with the metacognitive, the way mm-hmm. you think about your feelings rather than changing your actual thought, you change more or, or you could say you work more more towards acceptance, uh, for example, uh, that would be quite similar to to the humanistic tradition, uh, client-centered Rogerian, for example, and also to to uh, aspects of psychodynamic thinking. So tolerance of your, you know, to work towards greater tolerance of your inner life, inner world, so that you don't get so easily overwhelmed and need to turn to different coping that may not be very helpful. So mm. even if we have different uh, influences, you could you could also argue that uh, the differences might not be that large after all, at, at well, least not in, in some newer forms. I'm yeah, not sure. You- yeah. Well, we we could we could spend a couple of hours yeah, discussing yeah. this. Uh, I agree with you. There are a number of constructs across therapies that we use different names for the same uh, uh, idea. 
I mean, mentalization is a good one. Uh, exposure is, is another one that uh, kind of uh, crosses the boundaries. But certainly, if you look at therapists, they do things quite differently. Um, you know, uh, 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 post-traumatic stress disorder uh, uh, patient getting Ednafoa's uh, 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 treatment is going to look different than the same patient with uh, psychodynamic orientation, even if the outcomes are similar. So, you know, from my perspective, uh, we need therapists who are passionate about what they do. The communication of what we're going to do in therapy, I think, is really important. How we explain what work we're going to do in the treatment and how it's going to be helpful. So I get to go off on one of my pet peeves. But uh, often, or at least occasionally, the the patient in psychotherapy doesn't really understand why is it we're talking about my relationships with others? Why is it I'm talking about these irrational thoughts? And to explain how the work is going to be related to progress. And I think psychodynamic therapy has really made a revolution in that from kind of the open-ended, unstructured to the short-term, more focused uh, uh, treatments in which explanation of what we're doing here is absolutely critical. Yes, we, we need to have a, build an alliance uh, with the patient. So I would add to that, that uh, together with the patient, we need to find a good path. Uh, if you have social anxiety and you you fear uh, very much to go to, to, to talk in, in, during lunch with your colleagues. You could either get homework and, and uh, try to, to say one thing during, uh, during lunch one day and go back and report how it went. Or you could deal with issues that uh, maybe the, the, the client has some difficulties with uh, colleagues because they remind them of some, someone, authority issues. Or, you know, it could be they are so stressed out about traumatic things or, or uh, stressful things going on. So you could you could actually get a good outcome by by working in quite different ways with that particular problem. But that that you have the patient with you so that, as you say, the patient, it makes sense to the patient the way we're dealing with it. Mm -hmm. That, that we, then we, we need to talk about flexibility which is of course this, this sort of trade off because you want you want people to be passionate about something in terms of uh, believing that they can make a difference and really uh, and the humility to 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 try to make that fit with who the patient is and the resources that person has and his own goals and and what he or what makes sense to 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 her or or him uh, but you also need, in order to do that, you need something that John Norcross has talked about. Um, you need flexibility, but you still need to be yourself, like genuineness. Yeah, yeah. So you can't sort of, we, we can't just make, or maybe we can make make uh, robots to, to do our work and just program uh, that robot to, to be fully flexible. But then again, you would lose something, wouldn't you? In the sense that you're meeting another person who's who's helping you through a difficult uh, period of time. Yeah, yeah. Well, you touched on so many important points there, Elena. Um, so, uh, a couple of reactions. One is, you know, we are, the alliance is often interpreted uh, as we need a good relationship uh, with the patient, but you've really emphasized it's not just this kind of relatedness, but it's also an agreement about the task and goals of therapy. It's the collaborative work. And that involves uh, uh, a well-described uh, 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 treatment plan 
that's understandable to the patient and the patient believes it's going to be helpful. And you can't do that unless it's, it's relatively clear what we're going to do in treatment. Hmm. Although, of course, it doesn't have to be something you decide on, as, as we've shown with Hannah Odley and some papers going into the sessions. So it's not necess necessarily so that a high line score is achieved only if the therapist and the client have, have made a very explicit agreement about what to work on and what, what seems to be the, the problem. Yeah, interesting research that you refer to because uh, when there's a high rating of agreement on the goals of therapy, go back and look at the session, which Anna and colleagues did, and they never discussed the goals explicitly. So it, it's not always uh, like a contract where we're going to write down exactly what we're going to do. But there is an implicit agreement yeah. about what we're going to achieve. And there is something that is quite clear from those transcripts, and that is this future orientation, this, this strategic work towards change. Uh, you can really see that uh, the, the, they do work on what to do, but not necessarily in the sense, okay, so we agree about this, we agree about that. And I would say in many cases, it's my uh, experience as a clinician that the goals are changing because sometimes you could, uh, uh, alcohol abuse comes up in session 10 and then, okay, so that's what we start to work on. Yeah. Uh, Whereas in the beginning, that was denied or, or not yet uh, did the client feel uh, uh, this uh, the occasion to be open about such a shameful thing for him or her, perhaps, or other things. Yeah, insight or working through some things leads to a change in the goals. I mean, that's an experience I think all therapists know. We talk about something that is moving. Mm -hmm. uh, something that might be hidden at first and comes up later. Mm -hmm. I think sexual abuse is one of those one of those uh, issues that tend to come up later, mm -hmm. for example, um, and other things as well. So the other aspect I think is worth noting is this idea of flexibility. And you're not describing, well, I'll just do something different every session, or I'll do six or seven different things in a session, but it's it's more of a willingness to be open uh, and, and to what's the best way to achieve the, the goals, uh, even if they're implicit yeah. in a way, but still maintain a coherent theme about how we're working towards those goals. Yeah, that's, it's, it's a tricky question, I think. Uh, this balance. Um, so I like to work quite in the here and now uh, with the patient in the relationship. And so uh, rather than um, implying that I know how things are going, uh, uh, when I sense that the client is, because we know that client, clients do withhold uh, feelings of uh, disappointment or dissatisfaction for fear of uh, losing their the, the therapy it's it's quite difficult to get a therapist these days as as we might uh, discuss later um and other things that uh, may, makes it difficult in uh, an asymmetrical relationship to to address difficulties so you need to be quite sensitive and open toward those signals often nonverbal and mm -hmm. it's such a relief i think to when when it's true that something is is bothering the client and it may be how how we work, or if I if I have this idea about what is the problem, whereas it, the patient, in fact, has another idea that is something else going on, and and mm -hmm. something I do that is irritating, or or I'm I've misunderstood something mm -hmm. uh, many sessions ago, and I keep going and <laughs> with with something that is is not does, doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm. So then that's why I think you need to to have one therapist across the course and to work to work in in that and also use that cosmos microcosmos of a of a relationship that that is created 
with with the patient. So that's that's one of the things that I find appealing in in this kind of way of working. Mm -hmm. Well, you raise a really important question about uh, uh, the therapist understanding of the patient and the patient's progress. So uh, what's your take on measurement-based care using some kind of instruments to help you understand, are we making progress? Yeah, I th I think, of course, uh, routine outcome measurement and feedback-informed treatment, of course, are vital uh, resources to use. Uh, it's not the only way to do it. it maybe this is uh, controversial, but um, I think it, it's important to to get feedback from the client regularly. And, and and be aware of that, that that all those findings that tell us that we are not very serious in, in that regard. Keep, uh, clients keep a lot of themselves, um, and so so we and we don't we are not mind readers. That's not why we we help people. Uh, so we need that. Uh, we need to know about that, and knowing that should make any therapist regularly check in with the client. You could do that via. The different outcome measures, uh, you, but it's not the only way in the sense that sometimes I've heard from uh, therapists I've supervised or also clients that it can also be uh, the, that the questions are not directly relevant in, in the sense that you track something that might may, may not be exactly what is the most important thing for the client. That's why we have different instruments like the Norse, my colleague Christian Molter, uh, who sort of tailor makes uh, your own questionnaire, so to speak, so that what you track is really what you want to work with and what mm. you find difficult rather than, or important to, to, to make uh, uh, bloom or grow capacities and things that you want to do more of or something, yeah. Or, or reduce certain... Uh, uh, symptoms or difficulties, but they can be quite personal. So I quite like that uh, that paradigm within the ROM or or FIT uh, paradigm that um, that we should make it as specific to the client as possible. Right. So the information is important in understanding uh, the progress of therapy, but you're recommending. If we're going to do that, let's make sure the measures we use are relevant for this particular patient and this yeah. patient's progress. Yes, but having said that, of course, there are certain things that we do want to know that may not be part of such a very personalized measure. And that is, of course, suicidal thoughts and other things that maybe go underground. Uh, but of course, I would also say that those instruments are tools, but they cannot, and in my view, should not replace this uh, direct uh, work on, on getting feedback from the patient there and then in the session. Yeah, but uh, well, my view is they work together. It's not that, that uh, uh, the information you get from some kind of instrument on patient progress uh, takes the place of clinical judgment or the expertise of the therapist. But certainly it's a another source of information. And if there's a discrepancy, it's a it's a point of conversation. Exactly. So that that's really how how people use it if they use it uh, in a in a good way, uh, in a sound way. That it, it, I can see now that you report much more headaches or difficulties difficulties falling asleep or that you smoke more or whatever which i we haven't really uh, been talking about mm -hmm. yeah. let's hear what you're yeah whatever <laughs> this great conversation we could again go on uh and have these conversations for several more hours we have a a few minutes left and uh because you practice and train and research in a different uh, country than uh, uh, many of the people I've talked to and many of our listeners. I think it would be informative to talk about the mental health system in Norway 
And because I worked in Norway, I uh, uh, know something about it and am impressed about it. So um, say a bit about in your, because you have a lot of familiarity with, with other systems, about what works particularly well and maybe is different in the Norwegian system. Oh. Well, the, the most important thing that comes to mind is, is a fairly good access to psychotherapy or mental health uh, professionals. Uh, that is the most important thing. Um, we have, uh, traditionally, we have a large mental health system, public mental health system, uh, where you have outpatient clinics that every single uh, inhabitant in Norway belongs to if something goes wrong or, or if he or she is in need of um, uh, that kind of care. But of course, you need to be in quite some distress and have uh, symptoms that are uh, fairly uh, yeah, stressful. Uh, it's not the worried well, to, to, to use that term that normally enter these outpatient clinics, public ones. Um, but, but you're saying is if the distress is uh, uh, significantly severe, access through the, the, the national health system is available. Yes, and that has been the, the model for, for a long time. We do see that it's more under threat these days. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason is that we've had so many more uh, referrals to, to this system due to the pandemic and many other more societal issues that we could talk about endlessly in, in another uh, uh, podcast one day. But um, so lots of people like uh, psychiatric nurses, psychiatrists, psychologists, they find that it can be so stressful to work in these within these frameworks because uh, you don't get enough time. You get so little time, which of course mm. is similar to what other countries have struggled with for years, that you don't really feel that you, you give high quality help anymore. And so quite a few people have gone private. Mm. And then we have managed care and we have uh, insurance companies and so on to support that if you have a workplace that supports that. But of course, it also would then depend on, on the resources of the patients, which is, I think, uh, going against a lot of the, the good stuff with, with uh, the policy or the health system in, in Scandinavian countries. So yeah. I'm a bit worried about that. Yeah. So the quality of access uh, uh, is kind of a Scandinavian uh, ethic in a sense that that everybody should have access to adequate care um, is changing a bit because, well, there's pressure because it's costly to provide that care. So this kind of private provision of services working against the the value of of that equality yes and and to 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 say that because i have lots of uh, colleagues who have made that transition from the public to private clinics mm. and of course, it's not that they only treat very say rich people they they treat lots of different people who really but the the people who have less uh, uh, resources financially they they really need to to uh, use so much more of their income to get proper psychotherapy for, say, eating disorders or substance abuse or whatever crisis, or someone dies and you need you need something. Yeah. So uh, my hope is that we can reverse this. Yeah, because yeah. I think politicians, authorities, and professionals, universities, we we have really uh, put it on the agenda that uh, this cannot continue. So hopefully, we can save a very good model. Yeah, but let's be clear, access to mental health care in Norway far surpasses what we experience in the United States. We could discuss this in the details, but it is, it is important to, to recognize that. Um, and I know that firsthand from, 
from my work there. So I kind of, uh, with you, have this uh, wish that the the access to public health uh, is maintained and and expanded. Helena, we're coming to the end, unfortunately, because it's always so enjoyable to talk to you and and discuss discuss these issues. Um, we we've talked about a, a, a range of uh, uh, subjects, all the way from therapist variables to theoretical orientation to uh, public health and provision of services. And this has been very informative, and and I'm sure our listeners are going to benefit from this. So thank you for agreeing to do this, and uh, uh, I really appreciate. Um, the time. It's been wonderful. Thank you for inviting me to take part in this. Great. Have a great day. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Making Therapy Better is brought to you by CarePaths. CarePaths offers a complete behavioral health EHR and practice management software solution, including claims, billing, clinical notes and documents, scheduling, and teletherapy, all for one simple and affordable monthly price. CarePath's EHR is HIPAA compliant and ONC certified, and can also support electronic prescribing for an additional fee. Their latest release, CarePath's Connect, includes automated measurement-based care and the ability to create a digital front door for your practice, as well as a free mobile app designed to increase patient engagement. If you're just starting your practice or are dissatisfied with your current EHR, go to carepaths.com to start your free trial today. To find out more about Bruce Wampold and his work as CarePath's Chief Clinical Officer, visit makingtherapybetter.com.